Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the latest in our short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute, or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. Later on the show, we'll be talking to movement director and intimacy coordinator Ito O'Brien about her intricate work on the sets of productions including Normal People, It's a Sin, I May Destroy You, and Sex Education. But first... Streaming on iFi at Home from March 19th is new documentary Town of Strangers, which focuses on the inhabitants of the town of Gort, County Galway. Gort, a town whose population steadily declined since the time of the Great Famine has, in the past 20 years, seen the number of townspeople increase threefold since its all-time low of just under 1,000 in the 1970s. And while the town has become notable for its large population of Brazilian nationals, the story most definitely doesn't end there. Joining me now is the film's director, Tras O'Brien. Tras, welcome to the iFi podcast. Great to be here, Stephen. Hello. Trassa, your last film, Eat Your Children, was a film that looked at the tradition of protest and resistance, and Town of Strangers looks at the lives of migrants and refugees now living and working in Ireland. Do you consider yourself a political filmmaker, or is that a label you would resist? Um, The question was asked to Steve McQueen recently, and he, he said it's like calling me a male filmmaker, calling me a political filmmaker. So I was thinking, yeah, maybe I'd say the same thing, following Steve McQueen's footsteps. I am, but not only that, but I consider everything I do and not just me, but, you know, most people, what we do is political with a small p, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's not political in the sense of, you know, that I'm trying to uh, gain votes for anybody, but it's political in the sense of, you know, us being together as a group of people in this world and trying to work out how to be with one another. And that, that that is deeply political because of the terrible things we seem to do to one another and the capacity we have uh, to be kinder. Um, at the beginning of the film, Town of Strangers, you're seen strapping a speaker system to a van, calling people to audition for a new documentary. Did you have the idea of going to Gort to make a documentary or was it after arriving in Gort? How did the, how did the, the genesis of the film come about? Well, it was a, it was a really long winded kind of process. Um, but I was working on a script that I had based in a, about uh, two young women and their political coming of age. Um, uh, based in a meat factory somewhere in a town in Ireland. And I went to Gort to see how, you know, I'd heard about the meat factories there and so on. And I went to Gort originally to do some research for the film. And one of the first people I met told me that um, the meat factory had been burnt down, which I had been told in a script development workshop was 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 uh, too outlandish. But actually, it turned out to be what happened in Gort. And it wasn't sure how or why. And that kind of intrigued me and, and kept me there. So I guess, and I was quite interested at that time, Gort was the town um, most hit by austerity. So it was this like uh, post-austerity times that I was kind of going there. And it was also the town with the, as you said in your intro, with the, with the highest number of non-Irish people living in the town, which when you think of like a population, like, you know, for a big city, that's one thing. But for a small Irish town, it's something else. Um, I'd also, you know, Making Eat Your Children had made me delve deep into Irish history. Uh, That film, which was looking, started out looking at kind of how people were resisting or not to the bank bailout became sort of an alternative history of Ireland. And obviously immigration is such a huge part of Ireland's story. And to look at the immigration for the very first time in Ireland since, we'll say, uh, the, the raping and pillaging of the Vikings, you know, to see that you know, influx into Ireland rather than influx out of Ireland in my generation, you know, was such a huge change for Ireland that I kind of wanted to look at that. 
um, it's a it's a very striking image of you driving through the town with the, the the call to arms, I suppose, if you like, coming out coming out through the speakers. And I wonder, and I suppose, in in a town of three thousand people, word spreads pretty quickly in relation to what's happening. So I was just wondering about that. I mean, were people wary of what what the project was, what you were looking for, what was their reaction to it? The van was a kind of a thing I used to see a lot. I traveled a lot in South America and um, people would often announce things um, from vegetable selling to local elections to various things. They would, they, people would go around in a car with speakers and, and make announcements. And I loved this in the community. So I thought this would be a really sort of interesting and fun way to do it in Gort as well and draw attention to myself, I guess, as well. And it's also, I mean, I've, I've put um, these things in the film because in some ways the film as much as it has a sort of, um, a, you know, as I said, it, it's, you know, am I a political filmmaker? You know, there's there's a there's a kind of a making of within the film. So it's a film about a film. So there's a there's a kind of a, the film shows you how to watch it or, or or shows you the world of how it was made as part of the film. Um, and so that was a choice I made quite early on as well. And so that's why you see me in the van. And also, um, I suppose, lest I get too serious, it's, it's poking a bit of fun at myself as well. Um, as a director of the film and my kind of earnest and somewhat goofy efforts at trying to um, get people involved in my film as well. Uh, but sorry, in answer to your question, um, yes, there was a, quite a, a lot of interest. I deliberately asked for people of all nationalities and genders and said that I put posters up in Portuguese as well as in English. Um, so I was very much encouraging of the new inhabitants of the town to, to come to those auditions. And so, yeah, we had too many people on the day. Um, we had to turn people away, unfortunately. But we got most people um, in and we did a second day of auditions as well. And there were mainly people who answered that call and a couple of people who I had met and said, would you know, would you come? You know, but I wouldn't have known ever, anyone very well. And did you feel like during the making of it that not necessarily to be impartial, I, I don't know if that's the right word, but did you feel that you had to kind of say separate from the rest of the town while the process was ongoing? No, that's an interesting question because I'm a fiction maker and a documentary maker and I don't like making those distinctions, but the world kind of does. But I, I, I might tell a small story, if I may. So Vern, I went to the Rogue Film School with Werner Herzog and we talked there about, you know, fly on the wall uh, filmmaking. And um, we talked about being flies in the soup as well, when you're kind of deep, very, very involved in, in, in the work with people. And uh, more than flies in the soup, Herzog kind of took it again. He said, you're not a fly on the wall or in the soup. You're a hornet, which I guess in Ireland would be a bee. But you're a hornet or a wasp. And he's like a hornet, a hornet that stings. Um, and from those that conversation I had with him, I, you know, I, I ended up calling my kind of production company or trading name Stinging Hornet. And it's a reminder to myself that I'm always involved. I'm always participating in my own films. Um, and everybody is, whether you're an RTE journalist or, or Werner Herzog, the fact that we choose what to focus on, where we put our camera, who we're going to speak to, how we carry ourselves, you know, the very, the person that we are, you know, the, the privilege that we bring or not, or that we don't have when we go to make these works. These are all part of the filmmaking. And I try to make them apparent within the film without getting too clumsy about it, I suppose. So, yeah, I felt like I'm very much part of the film and Gort is part of the film and it's it's seeping out. There's all sorts of seepages from the film out into the world. I think it's not it's not just an enclosed film. And I think that's how I think of my work and, uh, and, and how I thought as I was making the film, which makes it very difficult to edit it and finish it. <laughs> 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 <I did. laughs> 
So Trasa, there are a number of people featured in the documentary um, and the interviews are very candid. And I was wondering as a filmmaker, what's your approach to making people feel at ease so you get those those very special moments from them? At, at the time that I did, did the auditions, I didn't ha- uh, wasn't thinking in that way. How am I going to, to get things from people? And in fact, I was thinking something else because I asked for dreams, lies, memories and gossip, which aren't kind of like you're necessarily, you know, a testimonial around what's going on for you or, or the facts of your life at that time. So uh, when I did those auditions, I was actually very surprised um, by how open and candid people were with me. Um, uh, not just with me, but they were with, within an audition space. I was sitting quite a few meters away from them. There was a, a camera person, a sound recordist and a production assistant in the room. So there was like four people in the room and there was, you know, so it was kind of interesting. It's, I mean, it's very different than, you know, something that might be more close up or informal in their house. Uh, and it was a space that, you know, I turned into a kind of a bit of a stage Irish kitchen because I, which was just a bit of a whim that morning. I wanted a kind of a blank space, but there was all of these amazing props because they'd produced John B. Keane's The Fields the year before. And I, I sort of put them around and, and, and decided to stage the kind of traditional Irish kitchen for this film. So, you know, it was a kind of an odd space, um, but it, it taught me something about filmmaking more than about me being candid or the, or the person being candid. And it taught me that people want to be witnessed. And I think people, you that day uh, really taught me a lot about human psychology and filmmaking and uh, and how people wanted to, mm-hmm. how people used that space to their benefit and took that space and said, okay, here's my story. I'm in control and I want you to see this and witness it. And I think that's what went on that day. And that's that moved me very deeply. And it set the film off into a whole other direction because these this way of interacting with me and this and with the film became what the film is about in some ways where I went deeper into those dreams lies memories and gossip with people and kind of uh, we accompanied one another on a journey that's in relationship with one another so they're not it's not about being the subject or object of a documentary anymore we're we're, the film in some ways is is documenting the kind of cinematic journey we went on together Tell us a little bit about the people that you interview in in the in the documentary. Who are we going to meet when we sit down to watch the film? There is uh, Chloe, um, who is um, seventeen um, at the time of meeting. Um, she's a young traveller girl uh, living in Gort. Um, she says herself in the film that she's the first uh, traveller in that area to have finished her leaving search, and she's very proud of that fact. Um, I met Chloe uh, through a local school teacher when I when I was looking for the to to cast the two women for the what I thought might be the fictional uh, story fictional film, and Josie, a young Brazilian woman who was also in school with Chloe, but they wouldn't have known each other that well. And so I um, auditioned them together, and I shot some scenes with them in an old abandoned house in the area, and they ended up being becoming part of the larger film Town of Strangers rather than a sort of, we'll say, a straight fiction. And so they, I met them the day before and I invited them to come to the audition. I auditioned them uh, separately and I auditioned them uh, together as well. And you see that in the documentary. You also meet Hamid, um, who runs a pizza place. He does deliveries and he has a pizza place in Gort. He's been in Ireland 13 years. He introduces himself by saying, I came from under a truck. Um, he went through the direct provision uh, system in Ireland for years and was kind of moved around here and there. And he um, finally got his refugee status 
and he's been trying to bring his family over for years from from Afghanistan as well. And Hamid is a very lonely person, I guess, and but has a very magnetic energy and that he brings to the film. And he was one of the people that struck me the most. I had put a poster up in his pizza place the day before and just asked him to come along. So I was really surprised when he did. And we became uh, very good friends, actually, ever since then. And his kind of uh, presence in the film always, de- always deeply moves me and how he uses the space of the film to go through something himself. And, you know, the trust that that Kamij and many people in the film gave to me to kind of tell their stories or work with them to tell their stories to, to an audience, but also to themselves in some way, because we work through dream sequences and we, you know, I show the kind of making of them and our chats about them as part of the film. There's Ralph, who is known by a lot of people in Gort as Freedom because he shouts freedom a lot and uh, he tells his story about that in the film. There's a theme that I, I know when we've we've spoken about the film previously, Trassa, about longing and belonging. And I, I think you see that most keenly with two of the people featured in the film, Hamid and Elham, who are very much part of this new community, but they're still very deeply connected to and missing home. And I suppose that's a really interesting dichotomy between the two where you have this idea of belonging in Gort, but longing for some other place or other people. Yes, um, the, the the longing and belonging, I really wanted to honour that. I think Irish people really get it. I mean, look at all the amazing songs we have about being away from home and that longing. It's like the, you know, I guess the, the Sodage or something of Ireland, that absolute longing that we know, um, I think we know very well. And yet um, when people come to live here, we talk about integration and we don't necessarily put value on what they miss, what they're missing. I mean, Anna, who's in the film, and I lived with Anna, actually, in Gort. I rented a room from her, and that's how I met her. She misses her father's funeral because she can't go back to Brazil to see him. And she she grieves him in Gort. You know, and this, this, you know, this is something I think that is very connecting to the immigration story of Ireland. Um, and I really wanted to kind of honour that longing. I mean, you know, in some ways, the people in the film, they, they, you know, I kind of settled on a term called hybrid cultural identities. But it is this kind of I think it's people who are who are experiencing looking for a sense of home and belonging, but yet also longing uh, for this other this other part of their identity that that they're that that's also part of them. And I think that's what I was interested in. And that's, you know, the people who came to me, obviously, there were auditions rather than interviews. Um, and so the people I was drawn to seemed to have that in common. I mean, there's all sorts of different reasons why I cast them and because mainly there's a sort of like I needed to. I needed to love them if that's not t- such a, you know, I mean, it is a bit romantic, uh, but um, I think I I did. I love everybody that's in the film. I felt love towards them and, and, and through working with them. And I needed to have that kind of just very human connection with them uh, in making the film. That, um, you know, is not something in Eat Your Children where I was kind of more interviewing people about like what they thought austerity was. I would like a sociologist, an activist, uh, a historian, etc., which was very different, you know. Uh, so this for me was, um, you know, kind of a deeply embedded moving experience for me and my relationship with the people in it. You know, it was a real stinging hornet. What's a, what surprised you most during the making of the film, Trasa? What surprised me most? Uh, I think that 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 audition day, you know, it's that sense of I felt I kept thinking of the word encounter. I felt like I was encountering uh, people uh, rather than just interviewing them. Um, and it felt very genuine and very deep. And that really, really surprised me. One other thing, Trassa, a name that will be familiar on the credits is that of Joshua Oppenheimer, uh, who people remember as the director of The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. How did he become involved in the project? So Joshua Oppenheimer um, made Act of Killing. I used to run a documentary festival uh, when I lived in London uh, called Open City Docs Fest or Documentary Festival. 
Um, and I invited Joshua there to do a masterclass film Act of Killing at the time. And so, yeah, we we had a lot of deep conversations, I guess, about, about his film and about some of the things that I was thinking about in my filmmaking. I hadn't yet started making Town of Strangers. Um, and we stayed in touch. And um, at the time I was trying to do a PhD and Joshua offered to be my supervisor, even though I didn't even know he was an academic, but he was an adjunct professor at, at Westminster. So I went on this journey with Joshua where he was my PhD supervisor. And so a lot of the kind of ways that I work in Town of Strangers would have been kind of, I would have researched a lot, thought about a lot, discussed with Joshua a lot. You know, this idea of kind of working with people uh, in a very deep way where you're really relational and working with, with say I call them making of scenes or performative scenes so where you're sort of like you're not just observing people or doing interviews but you're actually like inventing a whole situation or like an enacted process so in this in the case in Town of Strangers it's like okay tell me your dream let's try and make you know enact that dream and see what happens and so I wasn't so interested in like producing like a short film of their dream if you like it was more that the film shows us trying to do that um, and they happen in all sorts of different ways, sometimes a little bit lighter and sometimes a little bit deeper in the film. So, for example, we see Ralph trying to fly. We see Hamid meet his father in a dream where he has a recurring dream where he meets his father. And Anna dreams of her of, of her father, who's uh, who I mentioned she was grieving from Brazil and he appears to her in a dream. And so we, we show these, but it's 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 about uh, I guess it's a way of, of working of filmmaking that's quite different and has um, there's some elements of like Jean Rouche's ethnofiction, as he called it, where he works with people to kind of play themselves in their own lives. And I was interested in this and I talked to Joshua about this. For me, it was also, it wasn't just a aesthetic choice, not that it is for, for them either, but for me, it's a very kind of a deeply political and ethical kind of way of working, like as a kind of a moral or something to me that's um, where I'm kind of inviting people to take more agency over them, over their own participation in the film. Um, so they become kind of co-agents or co-directors in those sequences, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, and that was very important to me as well. Uh, with Ilham, uh, we did a very interesting process, which was part of an artist and community grant. So I actually worked with a whole load of people in, in the town of Gort that aren't uh, necessarily in the film, but they actually helped to actually do some of the filming. And through a whole workshop process uh, that we did over a couple of weekends, we worked with Ilham and her family. And she, in the film, tells the story with, with her husband um, of their boat crossing between Turkey and Greece, which was, you know, quite a, a, a dangerous and frightful journey. And they tell that story to their daughter as, as a bedtime story in a very gentle way, but it becomes a story. And, and we filmed that. And those kinds of encounters are just very different than just telling your testimony to camera, I think. So kind, there's kind of a living through something through the fact that I'm making this film. So we go, we're going on a, something is happening because we're making the film. We're not just observing something. That scene of the boat journey is certainly one of the most moving scenes in the film. Town of Strangers is available to rent and watch on iFight Home from the 19th of March. Uh, all the rentals include a special bonus Q&A. Trasa, what are you working on next? A sci-fi. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, um, uh, I've, I, well, I'm waiting to hear from the Arts Council if I'm getting development money or not. But I've uh, started working on the kind of genesis of a sci-fi, but it's not, um, it's not a very straight sci-fi. It's kind of, I'm, I'm interested again in, in kind of using documentary footage, but um, in a way that would be repurposed or appropriated to become sci-fi. 
so it becomes something that it was not necessarily intended for. But I think there's a kind of a, there could be like an unconscious within archive that's a bit like dreams and memories and how I could like uh, turn that into something else that becomes sci-fi. So that's that's where I'm at at the moment. It's very early stages, but that's the kind of thinking around it. Amazing. Well, sounds fascinating. We'll keep an eye out for that. Tras O'Brien, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Stephen. Ito O'Brien is a leading practitioner in the relatively recent area of movement direction and intimacy coordination. She has recently worked on such high-profile and acclaimed projects as Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You and Netflix Sex Education. She is, however, probably best known for her work on Normal People, which screened on BBC and Hulu last year. It's a really fascinating area, and I'm very pleased to say that Ita joins me now on the IFI podcast. Ita, thanks so much for being here. Stephen, thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be here. Ita, movement director and intimacy coordinator are probably terms that will be unfamiliar to most people. So can you give us a little insight into what those roles involve and how you came to work in that area? So, yes, so a movement director is a practitioner who helps um, an actor to physically transform in order to serve whatever character they are portraying. So, for example, I worked on a play of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. So you've got the um, actor playing the chief. So that's an American Indian. So looking at the energy of that, the heritage of that, the songs of that, so that you can really embody that character. And then, of course, you've got all the different characters who are the inmates with all their different idiosyncrasies. So we were looking at what the you know, medical terms are, what, what the medical conditions are, how that affects the body and helping those char- those actors create those characters, rhythm, you know, where the tensions are, what the tics might be. So again, really supporting the actor in that physical embodiment yeah, of the characters. And then the role of the intimacy coordinator is a practitioner that brings um, a pr- professional structure and um, skills to creating the intimate content um, with the awareness that um, it's like a body dance, that just like a choreographer is going to choreograph a tango or a stunt coordinator is going to you know, help teach skills and then choreograph that fight. That's exactly the same as what the intimacy coordinator does for intimate content. So it's interesting that you use the word choreography. So do you have a background in dance or, or, or how did you move into the area of movement direction? I do indeed. Um, sort of my mum's from Cookstown, County Tyrone. My dad's from Clonmel and Tipperary, but um, they ended up settling in um, South East London. And my mum wanted me to go to Irish dancing, but there wasn't any. So she sent me to a ballet teacher called Mrs. Handel in Hayes. And then the school that I went to also had the most amazing ballet teacher, a lady called Madeline Sharp. So I've absolutely um, trained in, in dance since the age of three. And then I ended up working professionally as a musical theatre dancer. And then I retrained as an actor and worked as an actor for eight years before doing the MA in movement studies, which then brought those two things together. And then I worked as a movement teacher in drama schools, helping to train actors to become connected with their bodies and be able to have that precision of transforming into character. And then, as I've just described, being a movement director. So that's been my little journey through this profession. And I've been professional now for over 36 years. Wow. In relation to the intimacy coordination, um, I suppose it, it's a, a role that's kind of come to the forefront in, 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 kind of in recent times. And I suppose the temptation is to presume that this started as a result of, of Harvey Weinstein and you know, the Me Too movement, but it started well before then. Absolutely. So um, I was actually, you know, sort of in my, you know, as I was movement directing, movement teaching, then I was also writing my own work. I put on my own play about a moment um, in an Irish Catholic family looking at from the granny 
to the mother, to the daughter. And then I was wanting to look at that play and taking it further and doing a devised piece. And I was looking at the dynamic of the flip side of the perpetrator and the victim. And in that, I was looking at what practices and principles should I put in place in order to have a really healthy, robust rehearsal process so that my actors can really presently and consciously explore that kind of dynamic and then in, and then at the end of the day, step away, both at the end of each day of exploration and at the end of the whole process. So I was looking at that from 2014. And then I got um, one of my colleagues said, please, will you come and start teaching what you're developing? Because I have to invariably note intimate content with my students in the drama schools and um, either they just don't do it right. And then when I speak to them about actually this is the physicality that you need to bring into this, then um, their eyes glaze over because there was no professional structure in order to create that intimate content in an open professional way that allowed the actors to be to stay creative, to be autonomous and empowered. So I so I started teaching the work in April of 2015. And as you uh, you know, and then gradually over those years, honed and developed the work and actually started sharing the work with the industry. I spoke to British Equity in the um, February of 2017 and I shared the work. The first presentation was in um, June of 2017, sharing it with what's called the PMA, the group of agents who instantly goes, oh, thank you. We need, we so need this. But the narrative was still challenging in the industry. So, so the shift that the Weinstein allegations and then most importantly, the subsequent me too and times up movements and then the codes of conduct what that what that gave was then an industry finally saying we cannot turn a blind eye to predatory behavior we have to do better creating the codes of conduct you know where we're setting out that everybody should be able to be in their workplace without fear of harassment or abuse and that includes this industry and then in that environment the industry they're going and how do we do within this intention, the intimate content well. And I was there ready to say, here's the intimacy on set guidelines. Here's a professional structure within which we can honor everybody, work professionally and create really good work. So before there was those guidelines and the code of conduct was, was kind of beginning to be more widely used. I mean, what was the situation on set beforehand? Was, that, was it very much a case that actors and crew would just figure, figure it out amongst themselves and set their own boundaries and guidelines? Well, yes, um, without, with a void of the idea that, that we needed a professional practitioner to help hold that space, that it was sort of like it was just dropped between the cracks. And it meant, first of all, a director knows that they shouldn't be expected to know how to do a tango. They know that they're going to bring in a practitioner. It's obvious that a director knows that they don't know how to perhaps do swordplay. They're going to bring in a practitioner, the stunt coordinator. But the thing with intimate content is, is it wasn't in people's awareness that actually this is a body dance. You know, this is two people moving together with a certain rhythm that escalates or whatever it needs to do to serve that storytelling, to serve the script. And then the people's personal, private, intimate body is at play. So there's a risk to that. But all of that wasn't within people's consciousness. So within that, a director would, you know, there's so many directors that are saying to me, I was always so nervous in themselves about doing the intimate content because they knew that they, you know, they didn't have skills. And it was embarrassing to talk about the intimate content without a professional structure there. Mm. Invariably, it was just left. And so you get to the day on set and then actors would be really nervous and perhaps the director would talk to the actors and then sort of very often one or two things would happen. One, the director would say, OK, now we've talked about it. You two go away, work it out for yourselves and come back and show me what you've, what you've got. And in that situation, you've got two people who suddenly from having that professional conversation with the director serving their vision, they're sort of sent off privately to try and work it out, which isn't a professional situation to be in. 
you hear of actors, of course, they're wanting to take care of each other, they're wanting to serve the director, but without that professional holding, you know, there was that awkwardness of, you know, what are you okay with? What am I okay with? And um, so, so again, that's not really helping the actors to create the work in the best way. Or the director would say, right, you know what we want here, step in front of the camera, go for it. And yeah. again, in that situation, the, an actor doesn't know where they're going to be touched. They're not too sure of where their touching is going to be okay. And again, that's where you get these, you know, historically these intimate scenes where you hear the actors going, oh, they're so awkward. But also, the, you know, what we get of the intimate content is just this, you know, hit and miss. And, and I, I really firmly believe that when us as an audience have watched intimate scenes where we're ending up squirming, I think it's very often that we're feeling the actor's personal uncomfortableness because there hasn't been that professional structure in order to create content in a professional way. It's it's kind of strange and it's sort of counterintuitive, I suppose. I wonder is the perception was that all these scenes that were of intimacy and kind of sexual content, is it more of a psychological thing? Because obviously you have, you know, stunt coordinators and a huge amount of money is spent on making sure that, you know, stunts go off correctly and nobody gets injured and nobody gets hurt. But that this was kind of viewed as not necessarily a physical thing, perhaps as such, but it was much more about the psych- the psychology of intimacy. And that's why there wasn't as much preparation put behind because nobody's getting injured necessarily. So, so, so there's a few things in there. So first of all, my sense was that it wasn't thought of as a body dance and then therefore needed a choreographer to bring skills to this body dance because of that sense that, well, we know that not everybody walks down the street not knowing how to do a tango or everybody doesn't know how to do brilliant swordplay, but everybody, you know, as a human being, that's part of who we are. Everybody can can walk, everybody can, you know, have sex. So so in in that that sense that you didn't need a a professional to bring skills because it's something that we all do ordinarily. And that's, and then, so that was sort of like, you know, but, and that's where I've explained that actually when you bring your awareness to going, well, these are two people who don't know each other, Mm. you know, and so what you're asking of them is a body dance, just like a tango or a fight. And then, so the other side of it then, as you say, the injury. And of course, it's very clear, you know, if you're getting someone to jump across, you know, rooftops and someone might fall and break their ankle, it's very clear what that injury is. But the injury that people were sustaining from the intimate content not being done well and actors talking of it being anything from being awkward to feeling harassing to being downright abused, that injury, of course, is not just, it might be physical, but it's also emotional and psychological. Mm-hmm. But that emotional and psychological injury isn't something that's very obvious. You know, it's actually that more internal, but also, you know, can also be, then be far more reaching in someone's actual life. Um, and that's the shift in um, with the Weinstein allegations is that finally the emotional and psychological injury was being listened to and heard and then therefore saying, and we have to do better. So, so that was part of the big shift in the industry. Everybody knew that there was, you know, either predatory behaviour or just, you know, feel, people feeling awkward in intimate content and then people saying how, you know, what the after effects were of that, but without really acknowledging that injury is something that really needs to be taken into account and taken care of. Um, and then therefore, you know, sort of, um, you know, a structure put in place that makes sure that mitigated that risk. Fascinating. Isha, who would generally approach you to work on a project? Would it be an actor who might request it or more regularly now, is it, is it a producer or a production team who would, who would come to you and say, we need your expertise on this? It, it, it comes from from all all places now. So so it's very happily 
actors who I've worked with already, you know, so I had an actor on who I'd worked with closely on sex education on another project, saw the intimate content, she's going great, here's the intimate content, I'd like an intimacy coordinator. And I was called in on that production. But as the work is becoming established, then it's more and more, you know, producers right from the get go are doing exactly as is advocated uh, in the intimacy onset guidelines, which is right from the first reading, just as you do, you know, the producer will look through and go, oh, look, there's um, there's a dance. We're going to earmark that. We're going to make sure we employ um, a choreographer and we're going to put aside money for that. Here's a fight. Again, you're earmarking it, knowing that you've got to employ the stunt coordinator and putting the budget aside, that that's now exactly what needs to happen with all the intimate content that they go through and you identify it as a part of the process that needs to be um, taken care of with best practice, either making sure you implement the intimacy onset guidelines or you employ an intimacy coordinator and making the budget available for that. I'm just curious in relation to the day-to-day when you're on set. Obviously, you'd be on set for specific reasons. And I just wonder, does that ever cause kind of particular tension if you have a concern about a scene or an actor has a concern and a director perhaps feels that it's kind of intrusive to a certain extent in relation to how he or she sees the scene working? Has that ever formed a barrier to exactly what they're looking for and there might be some compromise required? So it's interesting you say that because, you know, the um, concern when I first started sharing, look, we need to actually lift how we work with intimacy to, to, to bring in a professional process. Part of the feeling was, but if you want people to have chemistry, if you want people to look like they really fancy each other, that has to be real. Yeah. You know, and that's where you've got in the past the thing of, oh, we've got a sex scene tomorrow. You two better go off and have dinner together. You know, which is, which is this really weird confusing of someone's personal life to their professional life and then being able to bring their skills as the actor to this, to this moment. Um, and it's, you know, well, it's not um, considered in any other part. We know that we're employing brilliant actors in order to bring all of their acting skills to all the whole arc of a character storyline. And yet, you know, there is this thought that, but if, they, if we want them to have chemistry, it's got to be real. Mm. And actually, no, you know, we want our actors to then really go, who is this character? And again, that's what happened then in the past was then someone's what someone personally felt about their fellow actor gets confused with actually who these characters are rather than who you are personally. And again, through the intimacy guidelines, we're able to to really look to that and focus on that. And that's actually what's part of what keeps the actor safe is really having a look at that separation between who you are personally What's okay for you personally? And then this, in our journey through to developing the work, and as you're so, so then back to you saying about that journey through, perhaps there's a moment of, um, you know, the, the, what the director wants, you know, sort of how you know, that there might be a question around it. So um, a big part of the work is that we're putting in place that journey of, that, of the conversations um, way before we ever get to set. And that's sort of one of the most important parts of the work is that shift, just as you do with a stunt. You know, so you'd never just wait till a day on set and then start talking about it and rehearsing it. You know, you're going to have those rehearsals way back. The stunt coordinator's going to talk with the director, put in place, you know, bring in crash maps or whatever's needed, um, put in place way before that day that you're going to do that fight rehearsals so that you talk about it, that you you um, you know what the actors are comfortable with. You, you bring in those skills, you rehearse those skills so that the day on set, everything is known. All of those conversations have been had. Um, and then the day on set goes smoothly. So that's exactly what we're putting in place with the intimate content. So that pathway through to considering, 
you know, what are the issues in this scene? You know, what are the considerations? What degree of nudity might be ideally wanted? What's okay for each actor? Therefore, what's okay with each actor? How do we work creatively? So I was in a, on a call yesterday. So an example is like someone getting out of a bar. So if someone's happy to be, to show like full back nudity with naked buttocks, then the shot can be a certain way. Mm. If um, someone's not comfortable with that and doesn't want any, as it were, nudity, so we can make sure that they're under the bath, they're infants of nudity, milky water, bubbles, so that there's nothing is seen. And then you can just see them rising. So again, you know, no compromising part of the body or what would be considered to be part of their nudity, part of the breasts would be seen. And then, you know, getting out sort of a, a, a wet leg, stepping down, you might see it up to just above the knee. So it gives the inference of still that nudity while nothing is being shown that compromises the actor or is outside of their agreement and consent. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of conversations that we're having, you know, that sort of this is this is what the storytelling is. This is the degree of nudity that could be there. Now, now as the intimacy coordinator, we go and have those conversations with the actor going, great, what are you comfortable with? And what's most important for me? And that shift of really inviting the industry that actually through that open conversation, through that seeking agreement and consent, yes, and in inviting a positive no. And I'm saying to my actors, you know, your no is a gift, yeah, so that we can all work freely and allowing you to, to stay creative, open, empowered and autonomous, working creatively with your director, with your fellow actors, so that you can stay free to give your all. There's no other worries in your head personally, so that you can then, in when you're in front of the camera or you're up on stage, you can absolutely be free to give your all as the um, as the character um, in that intimate moment. I wonder as well, Isha, because and it's been an issue, I suppose, in the film industry for a while, is that idea of gender parity. Um, and I just wonder about the actual environment on set because obviously you could have a situation where you have say a heterosexual love scene and you just have one woman on a set that's predominantly male or and, and similarly in that situation where you have somebody getting out of a bath um that you won't be seeing a lot on screen but the but the actor is still possibly naked in front of you know an all-male crew for example so i just wonder is, is that part of the conversation as well in relation to who's actually going to be present on set on the day Absolutely. And, you know, your awareness is, isn't it? If you haven't um, had that conversation, then, then it could be that you've got, um, you know, sort of like a, if it's a heterosexual scene or, as you say, a woman getting out of a bath, that you've got purely one female getting, you know, present with, a, with a, nothing but a male gaze. That's absolutely part of our conversation. And of course, like everything, if you have that conversation on the day on set, that's too late. You know, that's not when that can be considered and put in place. So it has to be having that conversation early so that that can be arranged. You know, we can look around, is the third AD, perhaps the first AD is a man, the third AD is a woman. Um, and then you sort of like have the third AD running the floor if that person is of a suitable, um, you know, experience. So it's always having those conversations early so that all of those kind of things can be considered and put in place. And, you know, with um, with the role of the intimacy coordinator, as, as ever, you know, sort of like gradually as the work has been developed, you know, my first um, actual role on set as an intimacy coordinator was on Sex Education, the first series, where I was very much working openly with John Jennings and Ben Taylor going, OK, this is the first time. And we were working it out together, what the process was of how it worked and when those rehearsals could be put in place when those conversations needed to happen um, and that and then we've been gradually creating our processes and protocols 
and then I'll be putting back in like one of the other things that I didn't always do as part of my check-ins was make sure that I would speak before the day on set to the first AD. But of course, the first AD invariably is someone who is already very experienced at running a closed set, but how they co-work with me as the intimacy coordinator in supporting the different processes and protocols, um, you know, for example, putting in a place a timeout. So the actors equally have the autonomy to hold the action. That, that, so that relationship with the intimacy coordinator working in conjunction with the first AD is really important. So that is now part of what is earmarked as part of my process of check-ins way before I get to set. So that relationship is set up. So it's those kind of things that as the work is developing, we're making sure that we're creating more robust protocols so that, as I say, the day on set runs smoothly. Um, and I've just realised that from my next question that I've, I've kind of played into that presumption myself in that there might be a presumption that, you know, this this role is primarily there for female performers um, rather than males. But I presume these kind of scenarios are just as intimidating for a male performer as they are for anybody else. I'm so glad that you have that awareness. And absolutely, we've got away from get away from saying we're looking after the girl. It is absolutely there for everybody to be able to work to the best of their role within the production, be it the director, you know, the um, the actors, also the crew, you know, we're there to put in place a professional structure for everyone. For example, it's not suitable for, you know, sort of the nudity is an action to cut and all other time you should be covered. So I've had a situation where the set's been really hot, the actors got a toweling dressing gown, they're saying, oh no, I'm too hot. I'm wanting to just continue walking around with nothing but a genitalia covering in between takes. I'm going, that ain't suitable. Mm. It's not suitable for the crew to, to be confronted with someone's nakedness in their workplace. And then and then as you're, you're aware that, that that is what's absolutely happened, that so often the, that the male actor has felt that, um, that it's their responsibility to, to take care. Um, and of course, that's an absolutely, uh, you know, right and honourable, everybody wants to take care. But um, but this actually gives everybody the opportunity to go where, wh- where, what is your vulnerability? Where, where are your boundaries? And for everybody to have a voice. And actually, it's as much, if not more so, that the men who have been able to um, to say, actually, no, I'm not comfortable in that choreography being changed at the last minute. Or no, I'm not happy for that nudity. So it's really important that we absolutely open out. It's about respecting everybody um, and putting in place best practice. Um, obviously, it's been it's been an extraordinary year. So talk to us a little bit about intimacy on set during a pandemic. Is it a case of everybody just gets tested and everybody lives in a bubble and, and not much changes from that point of view? Or have you noticed that those kind of intimacy scenes have been declining in number, if you like, and, and looking for alternatives? Or have the guidelines had to be renewed or revised in, in the context of, of COVID-19? So obviously there was that pause while all the producers and the productions had to reset and refine, you know, the the pathway in of the robust COVID protocols. Productions started going back. So the first production that I was back on was in June last year. And there we were, the main cast were being tested daily. But but I've had the joy of all the productions that I have worked on, have been able to have the budget to do that robust testing. And I've got felt being able to feel, um, you know, so that concern about someone's health being at risk, you know, we can breathe out because we know that there's a real trust that the, the testing is robust and that therefore people's health hasn't been compromised. It's still been challenging because we have then all of us as a crew in PPE. So we're wearing masks and then also sometimes masks and visors. So there is that added, um, you know, connect, trying to connect and communicate with all the crew when half your face is, is covered up. So there's that sense of that extra focus and struggle that, that is there 
with that you know ever present sort of awareness just in literally what we're wearing of of the concern of of the covid protocols but it has meant that 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 then we can still then create the intimate content um you know still honoring the writing and actually it's been a real joy particularly you know when i've had scenes that are of beautiful loving it's been a, a really lovely to be able to bring people through to a hug you know to have that sensual content and to to help support that um, so yeah, so it is it is a, it has you know there's extra extra concern, extra protocols to go through, but a real joy to be able to still choreograph intimate content during this time of the pandemic. I know you train um, other int- intimacy coordinators now that there's a there's kind of a a, a sharing of uh, the work and and the rollout, and I just wonder what qualities do you look for in a possible intimacy coordinator? Is it a background in psychology, physiology, or is it more personality or temperament based? What's important for a practitioner, it's a very complex role. You know, we're serving, you know, many, you know, we're serving the producers and they have their concerns. We're serving the director, making sure that the director knows that that um, we're not taking over in any way, that we're serving their vision, always coming from that, what their concerns are. We're serving the actors. We're making sure we're putting in place best practice for the crew. So so that holding takes someone of a certain maturity and understanding of, of sort of how to hold that space. So first of all, I'm looking for that. And then, um, as you hear, it's about honouring storytelling, honouring, you know, the, the, the scene, why it's there and putting in choreography for that. So I need someone who understands um, the actor-director process, how to interrogate the script, how to extract intention obstacles so that we are helping and understanding that embodied conversation that brings us through to this body dance. And then the final bit is, as I say, we're practitioners who are bringing a skill of a body dance, a body awareness. So I need people invariably who perhaps might have been movement directors. Um, so we have, you know, an understanding of anatomy, physiology, um, and then choreographic skills, rhythm, hat where to hold, you know, progression through of a rhythm right the way through a scene. So, so it's quite a complex group of skills I'm looking for, but um, but it's a very very rewarding um, role to be able to support people, you know, being able to um, you know, an actor who's you know my first check in and they're so nervous and haven't done a scene like this before, and then finally once they've been you know worked through the guidelines, creating a scene that's just absolutely nailed it. And then I, you know, when we check in with the actors afterwards, going, I'm so proud of myself. You know, it was a great scene, and this is now my gold standard. And um, thank you for helping me achieve that. So that's what we're looking for. You mentioned you'd been back on set uh, last June. What projects have you been working on? A um, little bit on War of the Worlds. Um, real joy to work on um, the last duel that, of course, was was being shot in in Dublin. That was an absolute incredible experience to to work on that. I'm looking forward. That's out on the 21st of October. Um, and then when I was back here, I, you know, working on um, Anne Boleyn, which was great, and a few other productions. So really looking forward to to um to those productions coming out. Well, absolutely. We we look forward to seeing those in the near future. Uh, Ito O'Brien, thank you so much for your time. Stephen, thank you. Thank you for your interest. Take care. That's all from this week's iFi podcast. My thanks to Tras O'Brien and Ito O'Brien. We'll be back next week. I hope you'll join us then. The iFi podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The iFi is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.